In the book of Daniel, as it opens up, it gives us the place that they're at and basically the assignments that they will have. That's not a mystery to us either. God has given us a place to be and assignments to do. And he's the one that does that. With that, I think an important area of scripture, and I'm going to see if I can find it quickly. I hope I can. I'll clue you in on as soon as I'm getting there. This might have been something that could have been whispered by the Lord into their hearts at a time in which they would have felt perhaps the gravity of having been displaced, losing their childhood home, and the expectation of living a future and a hope in the promised land that they had so believed in God for. In Psalm 75, verse 6, For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red, it is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. But I will declare forever, and I will sing praises to the Lord God of Jacob. The assurance to them, to us, is that God's in charge, and that's called sovereignty. That God acts on his behalf regardless of a man's behavior. It sure helps when men, women, and children are behaving according to God's will to please his heart, but he knows how to correct, and he does do that. Historically, we've seen it. Nationally, we've seen it. In fact, I'd say nationally right now, we're due for a course correction. Therefore, church, you're not to give up because we are the means by which the voice of God can be heard, and we're the ones by, as well, the countenance of God can be seen. It doesn't mean that we become mean. It means that we're the means of being able to demonstrate grace to people who don't deserve it, as we at one time did not deserve it. We're able to show mercy, as many we would say don't deserve it, as at one time we could say we didn't either. And it's a hard footstep to fill if it is without the assurance that God's word is true and the expectation of him and what he wants to accomplish in our life is agreeable by us. So in the book of Daniel, we're going to pick it up in chapter 3, but I will as well give you a preface to it. I think it's important with regard to that. What we do know in verse 1 of chapter 3 is that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold. That's what we know. Other details to follow. But what we need to be reminded of is that this actually has everything to do with what preceded this action that he took. 
because he had a very startling dream and to such a degree that it remained in his heart and he could not get it out of his mind. He was becoming anxious, depressed, and angry. And he summoned all of the wise men under his command and he basically threatened them. I need to know what it is I dreamt and you guys have limited time to make that revelation possible or I'm going to kill all of you. One thing that we need to know is that the Assyrians, Nebuchadnezzar, he was a warrior general. He was under his father. They were brutal. They were ones who designed not fetters for the feet, but fish hooks for the jaw. And so their cruelty was, in our culture, seemingly unimaginable how men could do that to another man. We've discovered ways of cruelty. There's no doubt about that. But these guys weren't interested in making sure that as they ransacked your community, in this case, the city of Jerusalem, they weren't interested in politics, being nice people. They'd come to do one thing, take that city down and take the people captive. Others that were of no consequence, they let go of. Because what they were after were prime real estate. In other words, human beings that they assessed, these guys would be good. Those gals would be good. Those children, up and coming, will take them. Anyone else, they would either kill or they would dismiss. What we need to know is that where Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego have found themselves just before where we're at presently is in this very distant land. It is assumed, based on looking at maps and giving a conjecture as to where ancient Babylon may have been, that that trek from Jerusalem could have been at the minimum 500 miles, midpoint 900 miles, probably maximum 1,500. And a lot of people weigh in that that was, in fact, the journey that those taken into captivity would have walked. You think about that. Think about if today your car ran out of gas, nobody cared about that, and you're taking your shoes right now and tying those laces because You've got to walk to Crescent City or Gold Beach 30 minutes by car. I can tell you that would be for runners the distance of a marathon, just a little bit over that 26.2 miles. That's a tiring march. This would have been an exasperating, fatiguing, and deadly march to have made. And probably it's assumed that these guys would have been about 15 or 16 at the most when they made this pilgrimage. When they would have been able to see it from a distance, and you probably could see it from a distance, there is evidence archaeologically and through a historian who was Greek that one of the phenomenons of Babylon was its size. Not only what it looked like from the exterior, but what obviously they wouldn't have been able to see, which was the interior. But it's conjectured that the perimeter would have been 56 miles long on each of the four sides of this square place. And that amounts to a little over, I believe, three 
thousand square miles of space. I could be wrong in the math, but I'll just say, let's assume. So you imagine a wall that's 56 miles long, every side. What if your punishment for not making your bed was take a walk? Oh no, not the walk. The walk of shame. Oh no, not the walk of shame. I wouldn't even be back for dinner, and you wouldn't be. But this is an idea right now that needs to be seen. It was a big perimeter, probably for visually helping you, which I'm trying to do, is it would be like looking at the, the Hawaiian island, the big island, Hawaii. Put your toes in the water, just the edge of the sand break, Walk back about 30 miles in the perimeter of Babylon and a square would have been in that configuration. The walls have been presumed to be something like 320 feet high. So you can imagine what the base of that would be like. On top of that, there were 240 towers for defense and offense. Those would have been probably on top of that wall another 20 feet. The wall itself was 80 feet thick. So that to your visual right now would be like a six lane freeway, federal freeway. It would have been big. Three lanes going one direction, three lanes going in the other direction, averaging about, if you would, per lane 12 feet. So this is huge, very big, formidable. It would have been unconquerable. It is assumed as well, scriptures will tell us that the Medes and the Persians were able to find an inroad, and it wasn't through a road, it was through a ditch when they had stopped up the Euphrates River that literally flowed through it. Pretty clever planning as far as design goes, but you need to get the picture of this. It would have been awesome. And it would have been also perhaps very oppressive to realize you ain't getting out of this place. Not going to happen. No one's coming in without permission. No one's getting out. And this is what these young men would have been faced with. But here's what we know, and even backing up to that psalm that I gave you, is that they had their confidence in the Lord. And to the degree that they were able to voice that confidence in a manner that told Nebuchadnezzar and his associates, we're not compromising. From the meal that they would have been offered, when they would have been put under the auspices of the head eunuch, that guy who would serve Nebuchadnezzar in managing different assets, and in particular, one of those assets would have been a harem, and the other would have been in raising up the young men that by intellect, by appearance, had everything that a king could hope for in the next wave of leadership. 
And so this tells us what these men would have been impressionable in, how they looked, how the way their minds engaged, and their ability, and I'm assuming this would have been to their credit, they could have made that 1,500-mile walk and have lived to tell about it. Their character was truly remarkable. And their conduct was without exception, exceptional. So that's what we know about these guys. In this part two moment of where they're at, this is probably within the neighborhood of some three years between the vision that Daniel seeking the Lord with his three friends in prayer, in fasting, and given the revelation of what Nebuchadnezzar had seen, here's what it did. It converted the soul of Nebuchadnezzar. We know that because there was a proclamation that was made. The proclamation that was made came from Nebuchadnezzar's mouth. It's pretty exceptional. Amazing. As a result was the promotion that he received. So what you need to know is that through these young men and God's favor on them, Nebuchadnezzar compelled his entire national group that they were going to worship the God of Israel because he's the Lord of Lords He's God Almighty. The revelation that Daniel gave to Nebuchadnezzar is of a statue. The statue was 90 feet tall, 8 feet wide, probably had a base on it. It was probably 20 feet squared in order to hold up something that tall. What can you compare that to him? So 90 feet would be about a nine-story building. If you're in a nine-story building, people look really small if you're able to look out the window. Really small. At 90 feet in the air for perspective, you would be able to see probably about 12 and a half miles to where your eyes probably would not be able to see any further than that. If you take that statue that was in this area, which again is labeled as a place, but I think the place is within this perimeter, this walled perimeter. If you're up at 350 feet, 320 feet, your vision then increases on what you could see to about 23 miles. Pretty impressive. This was the span that they could have been able to see if there was any enemy encroachment. They could have had plenty of time to prepare. And if somebody was in the tower another 20 feet above that, even greater would his vision be. I'm giving you a perspective on how gigantic this place was. Formidable. Impressionable. And here's the point that we're coming into right now. Nebuchadnezzar's heart has been touched. He confessed who God was. 
He required his people to pay heed to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. Three years later, here's what he did with that dream and with that statement. He made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So if you got a place that's, you know, as long in the wall as we've talked about, very likely this provincial area is a plaza. Maybe that's a better way to look at it. It would have been accessible to the people right now who are going to be required to worship this statue. And something's different about this statue. It's no longer just a gold head or bust. It actually is in its entirety gold. Because Daniel had told him that this represented basically epochs, time sequences in which he would be conceding his dynasty to the next group of people coming up. In other words, for him, it wasn't simply, oh, this is cool, I'm gold, this is awesome. And by the way, I don't care what Daniel said about this through God on that, I'm going to make sure I stay in place and my dynasty is perpetuated through my kids. That's essentially what he was doing. He was modifying the dream that God had actually given to him that Daniel had accurately discerned. So this statue is completely gold, very expensive, very heavy. Some have said, well, it may have just been a mold. It doesn't matter. It was gold. It was expensive. It was an amazing edifice to have been able to rise up at that level. You take a look at your skyscrapers in San Diego, Portland, those are higher, but this in that day would have been exceedingly high. And so Nebuchadnezzar in verse 3 sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators. Notice we're moving through his political cabinets, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Well, who told him to have a dedication for basically what now was an idol? And who told him that that was pleasing to God, that that idol should be worshipped? It certainly wasn't Daniel, Shadrach, and Amish, and Abednego. They were his counselors. They were the senior counselors over all of these men we've just now mentioned. How is it that a man impressed by God can now suffer to not care about God's opinion at all? But that is one of the things that happens with pride and in particular with politics. And the governance of people and the power that has been allotted to individuals in such authority, they can find themselves corrupt on what was their intention and origin, but now is their deviation and calculation. They don't want to know God's opinion about the matter. And we've got a government right now that does not want to know God's heart or his opinion on matters that actually matter. What happens? It breeds lawlessness. What does lawlessness do? It creates anarchy. We can cite all of the things that people are using as implements of destruction, but it's the behavior of the person that actually is the destroyer. And whether they use a rock or whether they use their fist or a baton or a gun or a knife, it doesn't matter. In lawlessness that is not put down, 
then evil is exalted. And these are the days that we're in. Nebuchadnezzar was heavy-handed. No one did contrary to his will. Yet what we find is that he's doing contrary to God's will. That's what arrogance does. It says, yeah, the other ones, this is the way they handle it under God, me. But me, between me and God, as between me and God. And so I'm going to do what's between me and God, my way, not Yahweh. And so as this advances, his cabinet now is compelled to go to the place of this huge golden statue. And the word is, is that you will worship and you will worship when you hear songs. And so the satraps, administrators, the governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then, verse 4, a herald cried aloud. Let me find that. To you it is commanded, O people. So they're on a megaphone, or whatever they've got. Every nation, all the languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horns, the flute, heart, Lyre and psaltery and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down, worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It ends there, and the presumption is that everybody did. But what we do find out now is that Daniel and his friends didn't. What we don't know in this case, because he's hidden from scriptures from us, is Daniel. The emphasis is that it essence is Daniel. He's not bowing down to it. And his friends who are on site are absolutely having nothing to do with it. Where did they learn that discipline? of disregarding a command that in essence came with a threat that you would die. They learned it both as young men, obeying their parents, understanding the law of God, walking in the ways of the Lord, even at a very, very tough, tough requirement of over 1,500 miles, perhaps. Walking into Babylon, and rather than cursing their destination, they called upon God, to bless them in what they needed to have, an anointing to not fear and to say fearlessly what God would command them to say and how they were to influence those people. Remember, there's still a part of a community of Jewish believers that are watching them be raised up there could be a lot of weight when we think of who may be watching us. But to the believer that is watching the Lord, we have only an assurance of a footstep of faith that pleases God and ultimately satisfies a disbelieving world gone. <sighs> who would have thought that? How could this be happening? Contrary to what I want or where I was going, 
You know, one of the things that we can see in our generation is how generations having once been removed from the heart of God by walking away from the Lord, how slowly it can take to turn them back to God. What we're hearing about are the latter days harvest, revival. That's awesome. And I believe it is going to happen. The question is, will we be a part of it? Will the church be a part of it? But notice this, it has nothing to do with willing ourselves to do it or coming up with a program to do it. It happens where you're sitting right now with what you believe God has done in your heart to voice in the time in which someone needs to hear what it is that encourages you in a faith in such critically desperate times. How many of us will be persuaded to abandon the Lord because of a persecution that may indeed come, not simply to our shorelines, but maybe to our communities and maybe to our homes. How many of us will have a sure word? Daniel and his friends, those who right now are being focused on, had the word of the Lord and the discipline to not deviate from it, from the meals that they would refuse to the requests that they would make to seek God in prayer and in fasting. It seemed to be inarguable when they asked in the name of the Lord and for his glory, there was a means by which they could do it. And then they could stand up in that moment of testing and find themselves proven. Nebuchadnezzar has already acknowledged by his mouth that these guys are extraordinary and that their God is not a God to be messed with. Why is he messing with God? Who alone is worthy of the type of worship that Nebuchadnezzar now desires? Well, that's the corruption of power. And probably the root of it is pride. And any of us can be guilty of it at any time. It may not be a gold statue that we have outside of our window or inside of our home. But there are places that we erect things within us that says, this one is going to stay. I'm not letting go of this one. And from time to time, the Lord says, let me clean that out. Let me take that out. Let me just do away with it so that you don't shorten your effectiveness for me. As this story unfolds, and it sounds as though it's a long one, but it actually comes to a pretty quick conclusion. They get ratted out. That's basically in verse 8 down. At the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. So the specific ones are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel's somewhere. And that's another point that I want to bring out. God doesn't necessarily always keep you in the strength of someone that you say, oh, he performs so awesomely in difficult times. I just got to be there. Where he goes, I'll go. And God says, no, I'm going to put him somewhere else. And where I go, you go. I'm building you up to be able to stand on the precepts and principles that you saw through that man of God, through that woman of God but you're going to be walking with me. You're going to be making decisions 
of confidence in me. And that's essentially what unfolds in this text of Scripture. They get ratted out. They get another opportunity to pay obeisance to Nebuchadnezzar. They spoke to the king. They say, these guys are responsible for disobedience and leading lawlessness. They're people, and others are going to follow. Verse 13, I'm jumping you down there. Nebuchadnezzar, in a rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the time, you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, martial amplifiers, Fender guitars, Hammond B3 organs, and big massive drum sets. If you're ready and that brass section hits their play on the score, you bow down. Another chance. And if you do it, falling down and worshiping the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. (laughs) And who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, We have no need to answer you in this matter. Isn't that a cool thing? We find that at times we get provoked to give an answer to what others are requiring of us that are not of God. And we get all of our notes put together and we have our answers. And very likely they are answers that are also those which are not words of grace and of mercy and testifying of God. They're critical words of what that person is suggesting we do, contrary to God. We have to be careful with the words that we use and how quickly we think we've got to pen a response. They just say, no need to talk about this. You know us. We haven't changed. You have nothing to talk about here. So what is it that you want to do? Well, they've already been told what it is he's going to do. Put them in a fiery furnace. Where did the fiery furnace come from? Very likely it was the smelting furnace for the gold that was melted. Although it was hot enough, it probably could have melted there. In other words, it was just a part of the industrial package. And probably at that time, in order to persuade people on this new religion, death needed to be the determiner. You can live by bowing down, or you'll die if you don't. And there is one who will come on the scene, and he is noted in Scripture as the lawless one. And that particular time, Rivers has been teaching wonderfully on it, the time when Satan with the Antichrist and the false prophet will have in their clutches a world religion that all will be required to bow down to. It will be a one world government. We can see ourselves moving in that. We can see governments moving towards removing their sovereignty and trying to come together, trying to make it work out, trying to please someone. Well, eventually, 
that will prepare a time in which you have no choice. Like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you'll have a decision to make. And so we have no need at all to answer in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve, notice this line, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. What a statement of confidence. What a prophetic utterance. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. What an awesome testimony. He's going to do it. We know that we could say that in certainty as well. Though our bodies may be burned, though, to be absent from this body is to be in the presence of the Lord. These guys are saying it with such authenticity that they are literally challenging him. Do your best, but you're going to see us again. They're not explaining how that they will get through this. They're just saying, you'll see us. And if not, though, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Not going to do it. It's not going to happen. Two outcomes. We're coming out, or we're going up. Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, it says in verse 19, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Verse 21, And these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This was a judgment, not of God. This casualty of those men who served Nebuchadnezzar was a result of his insanity right now. It doesn't say the proximity he was to the furnace. It just says that what they were required to do cost them their lives. And there will be those who in what the world tells them to do against those of us who are followers of God, it will cost them their lives. God cares about those lives by whom such a tragedy would befall them. That's the interesting thing about God. His love goes beyond us. Each one of us can feel and should know the certainty of being cherished uniquely, loved by God, absolutely. But there are those who handling us, both either as a corporate entity, as a church, or individually, as those who give witness and testimony of God. The outcome of that for those who do it, if they do not accept the Lord and trust in God, will be to be burnt in a fire that is unquenchable, eternal. That's damnation. As that lyric said that was penned, but you've got to understand that you're going to be damned without Jesus Christ, the Lord. And the punishment is hell. 
and it's not God being a punisher. They have accepted the consequence of denying the Lord and being against God. The fire killed those men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 23, fell down bound in the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. I kind of like the implication there. And they were tossed in and they rolled and squirmed. The implication to me is that as they were tossed in, they were unbound and they fell down to worship. To me, it's a posture in trial of being a worshiper until they get out. But it must have been pretty impressive. What had held them, it seems, was no longer able to bind them. And rather than frantically trying to jump out of it, they got in a position of worship. Let's worship the Lord, men. Let's pray to God. Nebuchadnezzar can see right now the way we're handling ourselves. Most importantly, God is rewarded by how we are behaving. And so King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. Why? Because he's witnessing it. Guys vaporize at this temperature. That clothing is like a wick. It's extra fuel to the fire. Didn't happen. And here's what it says. He rose in haste, spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. And this is not the Son of Agod. One of the guys related to many of the people we worship. It's an acknowledgement that the God whom he gave testimony of back in chapter 2 is the very God that he sees now at work in the lives of those whom he persecuted. Paul, many books, chapters later in Acts chapter 9, would say the very same thing in being a persecutor of the church and having an encounter with God in which he was blinded by the radiance of the Lord, and he fell down. Who art thou, Lord? And Jesus would introduce himself to Paul. Paul would never be the same. Nebuchadnezzar is on the second occasion in which he ought never be the same again. The efforts that God goes to to rescue the wicked heart the unrighteous person from a destiny of demise. He sees it, he recognizes it, and he will command them to come out as he speaks to them. Come out and come here in verse 26. Notice what he said before that. Servants of the Most High God. He realizes now what he had forgotten. They weren't just counselors and wise men. They were first recognized as servants of the Most High God. That's what we need to be, recognized first and foremost, above vocation, servants of the Most High God. Servants, of, I'm a nobody, servant of the Most High God. Servants of the Most High God. But I want to be recognized for being a 
singer, a teacher, anything, think about it. They're servants of the Most High God. Come on out. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. All of the satraps, all of the administrators, all of those guys we heard before, they basically were a part of the political scene and the persuasive team. They're there seeing it as well. Nothing on their bodies indicated the demise of the fire for the others that died. Nothing. Their garments were not affected. The smell of the fire was not on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying, blessed. Notice what it took for him to come around and say this. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word. What a great confession, Nebi. They frustrated me. I'm going to look bad. He's actually boasting. They frustrated me. They got the better of me. God actually has been mighty and awesome. And they yielded their bodies and they should not serve any or worship any God except their own God. He's now making another second proclamation. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made in ash heap because there is no other God who can deliver like this. That should be probably a bill put into Congress. You want holy fear? Okay, we'll just go ahead and add this line. There is no God, but if you're going to try to make something up that's a lie and contrary to God, then we're just adding this as an addendum. Consider it your consequence. Capital punishment on delivery for being contrary to the ways of God. And the king then did what promoted them. As we said in the psalm, promotion comes from God. Not from man. But God will allow a man, woman, and child to be demoted seemingly in the eyes of others that as they patiently exercise their faith and trust in the Lord, there's a promotion that waits. You've seen it in your life. You know presently you shall see it in your life. You wait out the fire. You take a position of worship. All of this other stuff that's going on has been foretold prophetically in his word. It's nonsense that's going on out there. It's evil. It's sinister. It is of Satan. But God's in control. In the fire that we're going through, God is in control. And someone has trained you on how you do it. Someone who has been touched by the Lord, who has exercised faith alongside of you, who no longer is with you, you know how to do it. And you must do it. You know how to take your place in a church in which God is honored. You must do it because it's where we belong. It's how God shows his power and authority in the spirit of meekness to a world that doesn't get while we're here and not out there. 